Sego. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Hey, uh, for those of you who are perhaps still a little unfamiliar with the, with the new intro song, I want to mention once again that uh, I, I switched from Res Blues, because I don't want anybody thinking we're just crying the blues, uh, to a song of resistance. Again, from Murray Porter, and this is from his uh, CD, uh, Stand Up, and this is his song, No More. So um, I, I just felt it was more appropriate for a, a, for a show called Resistance Radio. Hey, I want to remind people that we are listener-supported radio, and we do depend on your contributions to WBAI and to WPFW to provide the platform for me to do the show. So, uh, again, if you're in New York City listening on WBAI, I hope that you will go to their pledge line and make a donation in the name of this show. And that number is 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, if you are in D.C., if you're in Washington, D.C., listening to this program, and I hope that you are, uh, I hope that you will also support WPFW by going to their pledge line, 202-588-9739, or go to their website, which is wpfwfm.org slash donate. Uh, we, re- we rely almost entirely, almost entirely, on the listeners who listen to these stations to support these stations so programs such as this can come to you. Um, Look, I hope that people have gotten out to see Killers of the Flower Moon. I've had my criticisms of the film, and, and, and I, but none of those criticisms are meant to detract anybody from going to see the film. I want people to understand what happened to the Osage in the 1920s. Both the murders and the reasons for the murders, which was to steal their revenue, their oil revenue. I want people to understand that. But I also want them to understand how the situation uh, or the circumstances have been set up. I mean, if you watch the film or read the book, or there, and frankly, there's a couple of other books. Uh, there's a couple of other books. There's even a couple of documentaries that are out on this thing. But if you look at the Osage murders of the 1920s, you will find the bottom line is that the federal government would not let the Osage have their own money. Even as oil was discovered and, and they were now sitting on millions and millions of dollars worth of oil revenue that would essentially make them, as a, from a per capita standpoint, the wealthiest people in the world, they still couldn't have their own money. Why? Because the United States has designated Native people as wards of the state. And let me, let me be clear, that hasn't changed. And, I'll, and I'm going to explain that as I, as I go forward here. What they did was they basically said that the Osage were incompetent. In fact, they actually had to register on a monthly basis or, or, or something like that and certify that they were incompetent. They had to do this through an admission and through a, you know, through, again, they had to go to the, uh, their guardians because the federal government said, you're not competent to manage your own money or have access to your own money, so we're going to assign white people to be your guardians. You're going to be wards of these custodians, which are authorized through the federal government. You will not have access to your own money only to the extent that your, your guardians will allow you. So I think it's important that people understand that. You know, and, and here's the other thing. For those who do watch the movie and say, look, why did all those women fall for these white guys? Why, you know, didn't they know they were being taken advantage of? See, what the film doesn't really lay out is 
the ones who couldn't have access to the money were essentially the full bloods, right? The, the people who, who did not have a, a, a enough or a significant amount of white influence, in spite of residential schools and everything else that happened to the Osage and everybody else, they, if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were automatically designated as incompetent to manage your own money. I believe, and I think there's evidence to suggest this, that the reason some of these Osage women married white men was so that they could have, not so the men, but so the women, so the family could have better access to their, their money. They figure if we got a white man in the family, then I will no longer have to be considered incompetent. And I will be able to have access, or my husband can essentially be my guardian, which is better than having some schmuck in town be the guardian. So I think there's a certain part of this arrangement of, of convenience that the Osage women and the Osage people, and, and look, as, even as far as the children, if the children were half white, well, they would not automatically be designated as incompetent. So I think so, th there may have been a little bit more maneuvering and, and even manipulation on the side of the Osage to say, we've got to do something. This is the hand that we're dealt with. Dealt. So let's figure out how we, um, how we gin the game a little bit. Now, I'm not saying it was a great strategy, but I, I just don't think that it was just a bunch of wide-eyed um, Native women who just all of a sudden became infatuated with white men. No, I, 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 I just I can't accept that that, that is the actual um, full explanation for everything there. So I, I just want to throw that out there. So, but I, the part, the thing that I'm really trying to emphasize here is the overt racism held by the federal government to create the situation that created that whole mess in, in Osage territory. Look, you wouldn't have had all these white men ripping off the Osage if the federal government hadn't been not only complicit, but hadn't set up a system that will allow white men to rip off the Osage. You know, and, and if you watch this film and you're appalled by that, well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're appalled by it. And, and But you have to also understand that that hasn't ended. Now, look, the worst part about the Osage situation was there was a strategy by many of the white people to not only marry into the Osage, but then to kill the Osage so the white men would ultimately have more control, either through the children, as guardians of their children, um, or as, as just heirs through marriage. So there was a strategy that, that where murder became a big part of how the white men could take control of it. But I'll tell you, the federal government has done things over the years to come up with other ways of stealing money from Native people. Everything from, again, uh, extractive industries like oil and uranium and copper and coal, logging, grazing, all kinds of things. And the, the, the modern example of this, and I, I mentioned this on previous shows, but I want to be a little bit, I want to get into a little bit more detail. The modern example is gaming. So let's understand Native people didn't need a law to authorize gaming, to give them permission to gaming. In fact, the Supreme Court had ruled in a case out in California that there was no underlying federal statute prohibiting Native gaming or regulating Native gaming. They made it clear that there's nothing, there's nothing in our laws, right? And 
you know, so we get into sometimes this debate over things like rule of law. And I'm going to have a guest join me in a couple of weeks. I'm off next week for, for so while everybody else, while Americans celebrate their Thanksgiving. Um, but in the following week, I'm, I'm going to have my, my good friend Peter DeRico come on the show. And we're going to talk about his, his book, Federal Anti-Indian Law, again, as it relates to both the Osage and what I'm, and what I'm about to kind of break out a little bit here uh, next. You see, we didn't need gaming law because we never, there was never anything in place that said we couldn't do it, and we never gave that right up. And the Supreme Court in 1980 actually had to acknowledge that. I'm, not, I'm sorry, 87. They had to acknowledge that in a, in a case called Cabazon case. And once the Supreme Court had ruled in favor of Native people doing gaming because California couldn't, in, uh, uh, you know, um, interfere in their gaming, then all of, the, all of the states and the folks in Congress said, well, we can't just let them do gaming. Why? Because we're incompetent. They felt, oh, we can't let Native people enter into this industry without us overseeing what they're doing. So when they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it was another example of the federal government. I mean, when I hear people talk about nanny state, man, you have no idea. You have no idea about nanny statism, right, until you've been Native. So the federal government says, no, there's no existing law regulating gaming, so we're going to create one. And you know what? We're going to dress it up in such a way so it looks like we're doing something for Native people. And they weren't. The first requirement of the federal, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, the federal statute, was to have the state involved in our business. The state became the regulator. We had to enter into, if this is a requirement, a, a gaming compact with the state that surrounds us. I mean, even if we're not really a part of the state, we had to enter into a gaming compact with the state that surrounds us which is an absurd proposition. We have been, been fighting for decades prior to this to push the state out of our business in everything, in everything that we did. I mean, we had been engaged in tobacco wars for, for already for a couple of decades. And so what the federal government does, the federal government says, no, you're incompetent and we're, uh, we're going to put the state in, in your business. They're going to be the overseers of your business. I mean, there's a circumstance where the governor of the state of New York literally has to approve any alterations in, in, uh, in any kind of gaming protocols. The government has to do it. And, and, the gov and there's no timeline. There's, no, there's nothing to force the governor to do it. But we're being treated as if we're incompetent and that the, uh, that the governor has the, uh, only has that authority. So this is what the federal government does. They, they continue to treat Native people as incompetent, as wards of the state. And... By pushing the state into our business, they give them more authority over our gaming than we have. And, and, and look, the, the federal Indian gaming, the, uh, gaming law, the, federal, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it says very, very clearly in there that the law is intended to ensure that Native people are the primary beneficiaries of gaming. I mean, it says that, but the law doesn't. I mean, the first thing it does is it, again, gives an unlevel uh, playing field by requiring, forcing us to have a gaming compact with the state of New York or, or whatever state. 
and giving the state um, almost excessive authority in that relationship, so to speak. It's not a level playing field. So by doing this thing, you've actually created a situation where we're, we are so restricted in what we can do. And because of the, the gaming law allows the states to enter into what they call revenue sharing programs, the direct payments to the states are un unbelievable. And Seneca Nation, in 21 years, took in $2.4 billion. But they paid the state of New York $2.4 billion, almost half. And in fact, it would have been more than half had there not been a dispute that forced the state of New York to give up a couple of hundred million dollars during that term. So it's, it's clear that even from a direct revenue standpoint, Native people are not the primary beneficiaries. And then if you consider all of the other federal policies and state policies that inhibit our ability to develop economies, there's no question, even the $2.4 billion that came to the Senecas, you know, it comes in, the Senecas get to touch it, and then it goes right back out into, the, into Western New York. Even without revenue sharing, the primary beneficiary, look, I, you don't have to be an, an economics major or an accountant or, you know, or, or any of that stuff. Economics 101 basically says in order for a community or a region to benefit from economic activity, the dollars have to change hands at least three times within a region. It, so money has to come in. The services is paid for. The cost of those services, you know, get spread around the community raw materials, subcontracting, whatever else. But in the case of the Seneca Nation and any other Native territories, when the money comes in, it gets spent on the outside immediately. We don't even have grocery stores here. We don't have car dealerships. We don't have appliance uh, you know, um, retailers. We have Walmart, we have Home Depot, and Amazon. All off territory. So the money that comes into Native territory leaves immediately. Oh, yeah, we do have gas stations and smoke shops, and, and now we got a lot of cannabis shops. So as far as weed, tobacco, and gas, yeah, we got it here. And we can go, we can blow our money in, in our own gaming facilities, which is kind of counterproductive. I mean, the whole idea of gaming is to bring revenue into the nation, not to have our own people give that money away. Even if it, you know, again, especially when you consider that re gaming revenue we're not the primary beneficiaries of it. I mean, it's not like you say, well, I'm donating back to Senecation. No, you're really not. Because half of that revenue is going to the state of New York, and then what does come in Seneca Nation leaves immediately anyway. So I have to talk about this stuff because when we look at Killers of the Flower Moon and we learn about the Osage murders, we all should be definitely be appalled by the racism. And there's no question that we should, we all should feel that. But we should equally be appalled that so little has changed. Look, they're not killing us now. Why aren't they killing us anymore? They don't have to. They don't have to. They've manipulated all of the laws, including the gaming law. So not only does the state of New York sit there as the primary beneficiary, they essentially become casino operators by proxy. And once they've kind of softened up their electorate, they can change the laws in the state, so, so the states can do gaming. And then 
little by little, they start taking more and more of that gaming market away from native. And that's what's happening in New York. I mean, look, um, uh, Aquasasi had, uh, had gaming, Oneida had gaming, and Seneca's have gaming. Or all three do have gaming. That was the gaming industry. But immediately, once the state of New York started seeing the success we're having, they turned all the racetracks into casinos, and then they and they changed the law so they could do class three casinos throughout the state. They sat back, took money from us, watched a, a an industry build, and we can debate whether it's a good industry or not. I'm not I'm not even advocating for the industry. I'm saying we built that industry, and then the state, little by little started pecking away, expanding their gaming, everything from racetracks to casinos to sports betting to, you know, um, expanding lotteries and, and everything else. The state is, is into gambling big time. We are the lesser of the gaming industries or the gaming uh, vendors in, um, in New York at this point. Wasn't always that way, but that's what it is now because the state used us. They used us because the state had to get, had to actually amend their constitution to expand into class three gaming. So what did they do? They used us. They not only used us to say, oh, well, well from through Indian gaming, we're already in, in uh, casino gambling. And it's popular. So they, they let the popularity expand. Did very little to, you know, to push back on the, the hazards of gaming. And now they're opening up their, their own world-class casinos, even down in the New York City area. And they did that on, the, on our backs. And they're doing that to, to take market share away. So there is a direct comparison to what you see as far as what happened to the Osage. I mean, the Osage weren't the primary beneficiaries of their oil. You had the oil companies first. And even those oil companies who, know, who are no longer in business, the principles of those oil companies, the Koch brothers and others, they, they've continued to, uh, to prosper off of oil and prosper off of native oil in particular. And they said, you know, why, you know, why would you need to do anything else when, when you just take resources from native people? That's, that's almost a quote. And, and so we saw in the oil industry, native people weren't the primary uh, beneficiaries nor were we the primary beneficiaries of coal, uranium, or any of that other stuff. I mean, even some of the wind developments happening on native territories is a little suspect. I mean, who are the primary beneficiaries? I mean, it's just, it's, it seems like it should be obvious, right? But when it comes to native territories, because of the way the hand that the federal government has into it, and the way they distribute our, uh, their power to the states over us, we are still treated today as wards of the state. We're still treated today as incompetence. I mean, look, they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act because they claimed that we were somehow going to be taken advantage of. You're goddamn right we were. By you. And by the, by the state governments that you put in our business. I mean, there, there's almost nothing that was... Um, there were almost no safeguards that came out of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. What the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act did is it, it benefited vendors. It, so the people that we borrowed money for, the financiers, the, the, the gaming uh, equipment operators, the, you know, uh, the contractors that we hired, they 
became protected because now there was a clear federal statute that said what we're doing was legal. Because even though the Supreme Court had ruled, there was always like, well, what if the state of New York says to a gaming operator, you can only do business in New York State with a licensed gaming facility? Well, we don't get licenses from the state of New York. And, and that, that becomes one of the issues even with tobacco today. So there are ways that the state, in spite of the, the Cabazon ruling in California, could have pushed and, and made our lives miserable if we tried to pursue gaming beyond what we were doing. And, and we had already been involved in this. Let, let me be clear. We had slot machines. We had high stakes bingo halls and that kind of stuff in, in New York. And you know what? We had many people who faced charges as a result of it for years. People who paid millions of dollars in legal fees and fines and that kind of stuff. So this is what we've gone against. This is what, you know, what we've been up against in every industry that we've gotten involved in. And look, it, it, it does kind of suck that we have to um, look for the highest possible margin with the highest possible regulatory advantages that we could have to, to be in business. I mean, it's not unheard of. I mean, every, every industry does it, right? They find the location that has the lowest tax rate, the cheapest labor rate, the cheapest natural resources, and that's where they do their business. Or they farm it out. They, they, they take their, the American companies take their, their factories to other countries. They, they you know, extract minerals from other, other countries. So they, they leave a mess throughout the world as they advance their, their, their financial agenda. So I think it's, it's just, it is just so important that people realize as you watch Killers of the Flower Moon and you understand what the Osage went through and how incredibly unfair and racist the system was that you acknowledge that it still exists today. We didn't need the state of New York in, in uh, native gaming. The federal government forced that. We didn't need a law legalizing gaming. It was already legal. And the Supreme Court acknowledged that. When I do have Peter DeRigo join me on the show, we're going to talk more because his book, Federal Anti-Indian Law, really talks about how they created this so-called trust relationship, trust responsibility. And, and it's not trust in terms of the, you know, the virtue of trust. It's, it's about casting us as incompetents that need to have a custodian overview, you know, oversee our activity, whether it's the state of New York or whether it's these guardians that you may see in the, in the film. We are treated not just as children, that we can graduate for, you know, out of this ward status. The gaming law has been in place for, for almost 40 years. No native ter territory has graduated from this ward custodian relationship to say, okay, we don't need to have the state involved in our business anymore. No. The federal government said, no, we have the power to put the state governments in your business. And I think it's just so important that people realize what has been done there. Because as you watch a film from the 1920s, it's like easy to say, okay, yeah, that was terrible back then. No, we're still dealing with that stuff today. And I'm not just saying we're dealing with the legacy of that injustice. The injustice continues. See, I mean, this is kind of what we, we see all the time. We, all, we, we oftentimes hear, you know, whether we're talking about 
you know, post-slavery or, you know, or post-residential schools or Indian massacres or whatever else. That, oh, yeah, that was a terrible thing that happened way back then. But things are better now. And or if they notice that, yeah, there's still racial inequity. They'll say, well, the problem is that, uh, you know, you just won't, can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> Reggie and I talked about the other day. Yeah, we hate that expression, right? <laughs> the bootstraps. I like to, I like to take a bootstrap to a few people, but <laughs> that's a whole other issue. But I just think it's really important that people understand. Understand what's at play here. So they really do get this ward-custodian relationship. And the fact, and, you know, and look, when it came to gaming, they passed a law because the United States wants to claim that everything within the United States is about rule of law, rule of law, rule of law. But it's not. Because if you don't have the rule of law that asserts your, or, or that, that proves you had the authority to, to pass that law in the first place, you had no authority to, to infringe upon native gaming. But what you have, you have this special circumstance, and that's what Peter DeRico is going to join me to talk about. You have this special circumstance where authoritarian rule is, the, is what's at play with native people. There's no constitutional authority uh, built up uh, that the federal government can assert over native people. It's not conquest. It's not doctrine of Christian discovery. Not really. I mean, it's based on some of that stuff. But to, to codify the power of Congress to legislate in all affairs, the, all affairs of Native people, is wrong. It's, it's illegal. It's, it's, un, it's unconstitutional. But the Supreme Court established that legal dicta that creates that scenario. So even when we, we challenge things like the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, or when we fight that, the challenge that was put forth, we have to say, Oh no! Congress has the the power to uh, to take that authority away from the state and uh, and ensure that uh, our children are taken away. We don't even use our own sovereignty to defend ourselves. What we get forced, you know, in, in much like I said, just like with the Osage, where the system is what it is, and the people learn to manipulate it to you know so they can try to do the best they can. Well, that's what we see in the legal system today. We have Native people who will defend the power of Congress so they can push back against the states. We don't push back against the federal government, too. We push back against the states. Oh, yeah, Congress has that power. Well, what happens when Congress gives that power to the state, like with the, with the gaming law? And then there's no oversight. See, herein lies the problem. This is where the problem exists. So I think it's really important that people understand just how crooked the system is. And look, we don't need to get into a debate about who's worse, the right or the left on this thing. Because in New York State, we've seen a, a, you know, a Democratic governor who is both in Cuomo and Kathy Hochul, who have done some of the most aggressive and hateful racist policies and, and, you know, and actions against Native people that we've ever seen. And yet, we still feel like we've got to play nice. We, feel, we still feel like we've got to buy political will. Today, the Seneca Nation is still considering giving the state of New York another $2 billion over the next 30 years. $2 billion of their revenue. And it may not be quite half of their gaming revenue, but it's going to be damn close to it.
And why are they doing it? Well, I'll tell you, the reason they're doing it is because they believe they have to. There's no law requiring it, but it's the way the system has been rigged. And even with a Native woman sitting in the Interior Department, even with Deb Haaland, Secretary of the Interior, there's been no balance. There's been no adjusting the playing field. There's been no pulling back on the state's tyrannical authority over Native territories, especially as it relates to gaming. No, nothing's changed. In fact, to some extent, Deb Haaland has recused herself because she's Native from weighing in on some of these gaming disputes. Well, what the freak is that all about? I never, you never see white people recusing them because of white people are being dragged into court or being treated unfairly. I mean, it, it, it's an, an absurd proposition. So I wanted to talk about this today because, again, even though I have some criticisms of the, of the movie Killers of the Flower Moon, I, I still don't think it addressed the real scale of the amount of murders or ever really fully addressed how little the Osage ended up benefiting from even, even being regarded as the wealthiest people in, in the world, perhaps, at the time. Oh, and that's only because it, it was so uh, distributed across all of their population. But there were, there were white men making a hell of a lot more money than any of they were. And some of them were being, they were being screwed by their guardians, by every business that, you know, that sought their, uh, their patronage. Not just the, the William Hales or the, you know, or the Ernest Burkharts. There were many more people involved. The film doesn't really get into that. The book does a little bit better. But I hope people read the book. I hope people see the film. But don't for a second believe that the injustices, yeah, we aren't being killed for our money anymore. No, they've, they've rigged the system where they don't need to kill us for our money anymore. They can, Kathy Hochul, I know I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. She literally froze the bank accounts of the Seneca Nation to force a half a billion dollar payment to her. Then she turned around and gave it to the billionaire owner of the Buffalo Bills to build the new stadium. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It is, it is almost absurd to talk about this stuff. And look, when you put it in a film based in the 1920s, you can believe it because you can say, yeah, things were kind of backwards back then. No, they're still backwards today. So I really felt like I needed to put that war custodian, incompetent view that Native people were held in the 1920s into the proper perspective today. We're going to take some calls uh, here for the, for the second part of the show. I want to remind people that we are listener-supported radio. I am John Kane. This is Resistance Radio. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that I have platforms in New York City and Washington, D.C. to have these conversations. And, and as much as I want the listeners of this program to support these stations, I, I'm going to say it again as I, as I do all the time. It's really important that more people hear these messages, hear my voice, hear what I'm talking about. Even if you don't agree with what I'm saying, you have to understand, you have to appreciate that people need to know that this perspective, I understand what's happening. You know, for, for many, many years, Native people were treated as ignorant, as incompetent, and in many ways, we, we, we internalized our trauma. I'm not, no. 
I want the world to know what is being done to Native people. So I ask you, the listeners of WBAI and WPFW, those of you who, who are watching me here on Facebook Live or catch me as a podcast, please spread the word. And you know what? You know, I did, I did a whole piece uh, on my podcast, which is called Let's Talk Native, about how cancel culture is destroying education. And it is. You know, and my, my title was, that, yes, the cancel culture is destroying education, but they're getting help. And they're getting help from the way higher education is being marketed. So I say to you, who may be running a university, or perhaps you're a, a sorority or fraternity and you, and you bring in guest speakers. If you're not hearing the things that I'm talking about in any of your lectures, on, especially as it relates to social justice, then you're being deprived of truth. And I'm going to tell you, you, know, you we can quote Martin Luther King and, and dozens of other people throughout history who say, look, it's not just those who commit these acts against us who are, who are the oppressors. Because there's a lot more people who are remaining silent who let this stuff continue. And they, too, are, are oppressors. If you're not resisting oppression, then you're complicit in it. So I'm saying to, to any organization that, has, that, that brings in speakers, if you're not bringing in speakers like me to speak to your people, to educate them about what, what the real issues are today. Yeah, I'm going to talk about history. I'll talk about the 1920s. I'll talk about the 1860s. I'll talk about the 1700s. But every time I do that, I bring it forward to where we are now. Because as much as most of you will believe that American democracy and freedom has evolved and has improved over the years, it ain't improved that much, folks. And, and we're seeing it every day. I know, look, all the news is about Hamas and, uh, and Israel and, and, and the, tra the tragedy that's got happening uh, uh, you know, to, the, to the Palestinians. We, we hear about all that. And, and, I, and my heart bleeds for those Palestinians because our lives are much like theirs. But when I hear people talk about genocide in Israel... And yet we can't have a conversation about the ongoing genocide here. Again, I'm not trying to compete. You know what, what they call it? Uh, um, oppression Olympics. Oppression Olympics. No. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to do that. But man, we can't put. We can't silo these kinds of tragedies. We have to. We have to understand that genocide. There is no people. There are no people in the world that have experienced a longer genocide than Native people, especially here in, uh, in North America and South America. And it wasn't even one perpetrator. It was nation after nation after nation. It was industry. It was corporations. It continues. All of Europe was involved in genocide. And now you got Europe supporting, still supporting the genocide the United States is involved in today. All right, so I... Look, I know I've, I've thrown a few subjects out over the last few weeks. Um, I've always said that when I open up the phone lines, I encourage people to, to ask me any questions. And, and part of the thing is I want people to understand that there is a Native perspective to even things that you may not think are Native issues. So, again, the, uh, the phone line is... Oh, I got to put my glasses on, sorry. The, the call-in number is 
209-2877. I got that right, Reggie. Right? You got it right. I, I was ready. I was ready to assist, but you know, you you got it. You got it. All right. Well, remind me to give the number out as we go along too. Two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. If you want to call in, uh, look. If if you've seen the movie Killers in the Flower Room, let's talk about it. Uh, you know, if you if you if you got some lingering you know uh, issues with the whole Buffy Saint Marie thing that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, look. By all means, give a call. And look, and if you're somebody who's willing to call into the station, I hope you're still you're also somebody willing to support the station. And look, I know this show rebroadcasts um, in on WPFW. I'm hoping some of the folks in Washington do tune in and catch the uh, uh, the live stream on WBAI. So maybe we'll get a few calls from Washington. I know we've gotten some calls from other places outside of New York City. If you're listening online um, uh, through Facebook, perhaps uh, uh, I can. Spark a call again. The number is uh 2877. I took my glasses off and all the numbers got put. No, no, you got it right. No, you got it right again, John. You're good, you're good. But we got callers. All right, well, let's do it. Look, callers, here's what I try to do I try to ask your name just to be polite. I'm not, I'm, I promise I won't stalk you. Um, (laughs) so I ask your name and where you're calling from. And look, if it's Brooklyn or Queens, I mean, if you want to say New York, that's fine too, but um. You know, just it's just about trying to be polite. So we'll go to the first caller. Caller, you're up first. You're up next. What's your name and where you're calling from? Daryl McPherson, Bronx, New York. Hey, Daryl, it's good to hear from you. What's going on? That you don't have time for. First of all, <laughs> listeners, listeners, we need five hundred dollars this hour for John's gifting of information you're hearing absolutely nowhere. Now, getting on to you, if I am to, if I'm going to change my citizenship to a nation, I need to know that the nation knows that it's a nation. So I like you all. I know it's a lot of pressure and that the population isn't very large, but refrain from going, and I'm unclear as to how this works out. Refrain from going to the New York, I'm sorry, to the, well, that too, to New York State or the United States federal government of North America for any dispute in the context that, as you just said, the cards are stacked. You're going to lose because they don't want, because capitalism requires enslavement. So what we, meaning people who support um, the multiplicity of nations that live on Turtle Island need to do is, A, we need to master the system of getting the word out. John, where is the ad by the ads by the nations about the atrocity of Kathy Hochul stealing that money? Or let's say legally encumbering the Seneca Nation by doing what the the United States government does to all nations that it is at war with. Well, I will will say the Seneca Nation did do a bit of a media campaign. It wasn't um, nearly enough. I mean, they put some billboards up and they... They were basically, but you know, but I, I think their agenda was more about trying to soften the state's position on 
what was what they need to do in terms of negotiating a new compact. I don't think they called Kathy Hochul out strongly enough, and and I don't think there is enough of a campaign. She would have lost the election. She would have lost the election straight up had people known anything about the deal. And and it, and it needs to be it needs to be focused on what what was the reason for endangering the lives of a whole nation to to um to continue the exploitation of that nation that that, that is the clearest exploitation that you could see well okay. and, and look she she definitely she definitely had a strategy i mean her whole idea was she was trying to she, she, we're here now what can we do as as people who want to support the nation of the Seneca people. What is it that we need to do? Do we need to call all of our um, uh, gosh, politicians that, that supposedly represent us, who, who don't, but they, they say they do, um, and make, you, this story needs to get out you know, in, a, in a much larger and, and um, Huh. Well, I'm gonna get off because. Well, let, because let me let me I'm, let me let me say flat out the the biggest campaign that that I'm trying to participate in is the push to end what they call revenue sharing from from native gaming and and if anybody right. wants to call their elected officials, uh, you know, and these are these are state officials more so than the than their congressmen and the and the U.S. senators. These are the state officials, the assemblymen and the senate and the state senators, to say, look. Stop taking money from native people. You have your, you've got your own gaming industry that you're already horning in on their uh, on the markets they establish. Stop, stop trying to squeeze money out of the Seneca people. End revenue sharing now. That's the campaign. I mean, and and that's and frankly, part of that campaign, at least here in in Western New York, is the campaign to convince their own Seneca leadership to end revenue sharing because they they really do have this belief that if they don't pay the governor. That she's somehow going to walk away from having even entering into a compact, which will somehow mean they have to close the doors. I don't believe any of that's true, but you know what? we can't get a straight answer out of Deb Haaland in Washington. We can't get a straight answer out of most of the lawyers are are all aligned in such a way that they support the status quo of native gaming. But I, the biggest thing that, that that any individual can do on this specific issue is to say end revenue sharing across the board and in all states, not just in New York state, because there are states after states after states that are doing this, the native people where they're squeezing them for revenue and they're, and they're basically forcing them into revenue sharing, even though technically it's illegal to do that. And what I'm asking is, is that what international entity the Seneca's go to, to assert their nationhood against all of these pseudo governments that are captured and and, and pro propelled through by by capitalists. There, there's there, there's no really happen. great there's no really great platform. There is the National Congress, the American Indian, but you know, but they they kind of take a softer position on some of this stuff. I mean, there's there's trade organizations. No, there there are not the vehicles for this. That's why that's why I say what I'm so glad to be on WBAI and WPFW and to be able to at least build the small platforms that I have to have these conversations. Because frankly, I don't think many of these nations, including the Senate nation, advocate strongly enough for their own selves.
So. Well, look, Daryl, I want to thank you for calling. Let me, let me try to get to a few other callers if you could. Um, I, I appreciate the call. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the conversation. It was, yours was more than a call. It was really a conversation, so I appreciate it. Let me, uh, let me go to another caller here. Caller, you're up next. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Yes. Um, everybody knows who I am, so <laughs> it, I don't need to go into all No introductions <laughs> necessary. Right. Um, okay. Um, I want to uh, speak on the first part of your program regarding how um, this uh, guardianship and, and sometimes it's con called conservatorship, depending on the state, but that is something that has a wide net, okay? And people need to check out Michael Larson, L-A-R-S-E-N. He has a book called uh, Guardianships, colon, Fraud. Okay, and he speaks about murderous profiteers. So things are bad, really bad, as uh, Howard Beale would say. My got my thinking cap going, uh, and there are people who come through around the numbers and the timing and all. But I heard a caller with Catherine Davis uh, last Friday, and he was talking about the technology that Hamas has and being able to breach walls and, and, and all. And so we need to ask ourselves, because there seems to be a plan. I mean, they just, you know, streaming live the, uh, the genocide uh, in terms of being some part of a false flag, which we know for sure, and we need to get back on track with September 11, 2001. reason why I say the full date is because in... Uh, Kent Baines, uh, he has a first initial on blanket on um, B-A-I-N, that's his real name, uh, the most dangerous book in the world, 9-11 as mega ritual, okay? And we saw all the wars and who got, got designated as a terrorist. So we're, we're in some, some times that really requires us to be spiritually and too many people are having sort of uh, the opposite. But I like to hear the callers, so I'll, I'll um, uh, that's just uh, about it. But, but let me just make this last point. When everyone says 9-11, which they all have us programmed to say, when you um, look at it through uh, Bain's research, it means evil magic. So there, there's definitely evil magic going on. That's my last point, and I'll listen to some other callers. Thank you. Uh, my only response I'm going to say, you know, because I'm not even going to really get into the whole 9-11 debacle, but um, you mentioned this idea of conservatorship or, or, or guardianship and that kind of stuff. The thing is, and when I have Peter DeRico join me in a couple of weeks, you'll hear him explain how the Supreme Court won't even hold this idea of trusteeship when it comes to Native people to the same standard that exists throughout the rest of what they consider, you know, trust law. It's different when it, when it applies to Native people. In fact, Supreme Court justices have literally said, well, it's not really a legal trust. So they, they get the best of whatever advantage they can spin on this stuff when it comes to controlling our lives. So I wanted to throw that in there because... It, you know, we aren't talking about trusts uh, as in as in the the standard 
legal definition of trust law, not when it comes to Native people. Everything's different. Everything's different. Everything is done basically based on authoritarian rule, not rule of law. All right, we got probably time for at least one more call. Let's try another caller. Caller, you're up next. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, John. It's Jeff from Union County, New Jersey. We've spoken several times in the past. It's good to hear from you, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Okay, listen, if you will indulge me, I've got two things to say. i got a, a, a comment and also a question. Go ahead. My comment is, you know, I, I listen to you every week. I don't always listen to you in real time, so sometimes I'm shouting at the radio. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess you haven't heard me. I know you talk a lot about how your show isn't a big uh, moneymaker for, for uh, BAI. And, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they changed you from a two-hour format, which was talk talk back call-in to a one hour, and it doesn't give you time to do a proper call-in. And uh, I think that's really the crux of it, because I remember, you know, back in the day with Hugh Hamilton's talk back, and your show was right up there with his. And I just, you know, it was great because you could talk about any subject, right. any topic. Now, my question is, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I'm sitting here with my wife, and my wife's turning purple because she's an accountant by trade. Anyway, my question is, if, if Kathy Hochul hadn't extorted that extra half a billion dollars or more than half a billion from the Senecas, if they had that money in their coffer, would that have improved the lifestyle of the, of the average general Seneca population? Because it seems like you always talk about how the population of, of indigenous people is dwindling, and you talk about their, you know, their, their revenue of $2.5 billion, you would think that they would almost be like the Osage back in the day. Well, it's two and a half billion over. That's my question. Oh, it's two and a half billion over twenty-one years, and and let's let's be clear here. That's the that is the sole source of public finance for the Seneca Nation. So the the entire Seneca Nation is being run off of essentially off of gaming revenue. So yeah, if they were able to keep that half a billion dollars, for one thing, they got hurt big time with COVID, as did every other business, right? They got hurt big time with COVID, and if. They had been able to, to uh, you know, keep that money, then uh, you know, basically they had they'd done everything from reduce the amount that in individual Senecas get in terms of, uh, you know, uh, annuity payments. Uh, and it's not much. I mean, we're talking about, you know, $700 a month, and, and that was reduced even lower than that. Um, they had to reduce services in, in, in any number of ways. Look, there is no other public finance vehicle in the Seneca Nation. So... Everything from the healthcare. I mean, yeah, there's some Indian health services that comes in, but everything from healthcare to benefits for seniors, everything in the Seneca Nation is funded through that. So, two point four billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but you're talking about a government that's operating, you know, all of these services through off of that off of that gaming revenue. And so, when half of it is being squeezed out of out of the Seneca Nation by the state of New York. Yeah, we would have better mental health uh, issues. I talked about um, a suicide the, the other day. We would have better me mental health uh, uh, counseling and that kind of stuff. We would be able, able to address a lot more issues associated with substance abuse and any number of other things. So there's no question that if we were able to keep the revenue that is rightfully ours, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because I live on Seneca territory, I'm not actually Seneca, but if they were able to keep the money that was theirs, they would be able to provide more and more benefits, including better housing, you know, transportation issues, all kinds of stuff. 
I hope that okay, answers. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> I just was curious about that. Yeah, and and look, the Seneca Nation population is not dwindling. It's actually growing, not nearly as rapidly as some people uh, alleged it is, but it, but it's growing, and the, the the needs for housing and 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 you know child care and stuff like that continues to grow. And and this is the you know the Seneca Nation has a Head Start and a you know a nursery program. They have all kinds of stuff that they do here. But all that stuff's got to get funded, and it gets funded from from gaming primarily. So. I don't know. We probably don't have enough time for another call, so I want to I want to thank those of you who did call. I know I try to have a conversation with the callers, and I know that's different than some some other uh, talkback shows. A lot of times, people want ask the question and get off, and let me and let me answer, and we'll we'll get. But no, I I agree. I I wish I had two hours. I wish I could do a full hour of talkback after I present an issue or a guest and that kind of stuff. And usually, when I have a guest, I don't really even have time to do talkback after that, which is kind of unfortunate. So um, it is. This is what we have. So, I again, I, I hope people will support WBAI. Uh, maybe, maybe you do put a plug in to expand the Resistance Radio in two hours. I don't know. But, but you're not going to get me expanded if you're not supporting the station uh, that's giving me at least one hour at this point. And that goes for WBAI and for WPFW. So, please support these two stations for, and thank them for giving me this platform. And, and spread the word. Let people know that, uh, that there is a native voice saying things that you're not hearing anywhere else. And there are a lot of iconic native voices out there. People who do speaking tours and they get they show up in, you know, in regalia and ribbon shirts. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. If if I show up at at your venue, I'm going to I'm going to have a hard conversation and I'm going to speak about some uncomfortable truths because I think that's what's necessary. So I want to thank you for indulging me in the 1 hour that I do have on these two fine radio stations. And, and I hope, I hope that for those of you who are in university, for those of you who are in certain industries where perhaps you are part of a trade organization, a trade association that, that wants to learn more about social justice issues, I don't think you can talk about Black Lives Matter and not talk about whether Native Lives Matter as well. I don't think you can have that conversation. I don't think you can talk about slavery and not understand that Native people were enslaved. I don't think you can talk about any of these social justice issues, I mean, part of the reason I, I, I stood so strongly on the mascot issue is that should have been a no-brainer. The idea that Native people were being mocked by primarily white people in terms of being used for a Native mascot or a school mascot is absurd. They don't do it to anybody else. But even when I bring that up, there are still, I mean, look, there are, there are four schools in Long Island right now fighting like hell, fighting mad over trying to keep their native mascots. They're, they're suing the state of New York in, uh, because of the mascot ban that I pressed so hard for out of the New York State uh, Department of Education. And you know what? To the New York State legislature, you guys should back that ban up with, uh, by, by codifying it in law. I didn't go to you because I know how ugly politics is in New York State and how ugly politics is nationally. That's why I, I, I relied almost solely on an agency that is supposed to be apolitical, a an education department. And that's what that's why I pushed for the mascot ban, because there we could take the politics out of it. But now that that ban's in place, and you've got four schools down in Long Island challenging whether they can legally do that, back them up. Make it a moot point. Pass a law. We got the ban, but pass a law for that ban. That's that, that's my other advice, I guess, to, to those who are, who are uh, wondering what they can do to help. I want to thank you for listening. Reggie, I want to thank you for helping me with the calls, and uh, as always, and uh, 
Look, off next week, but I'll be back the following week. Enjoy your holiday, but remember, it's not our holiday. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.